0: Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Nolan Ryan, founder and CEO of Rydro Farming. Rydro Farming is a hydroponic indoor farm that grows crops 365 days a year. But unlike previous episodes, where we've interviewed indoor farming startups, like Square Roots and Freight Farms and Bowery Farming that grow really well-known leafy greens, Hydro Farming focuses on specialty crops. And the key difference between leafy greens and specialty crops is that these specialty crops are much harder to grow. The prime environment required to grow these crops happens only a few months out of the year. And if you aren't located in those environments, Typically what happens is these specialty crops just end up getting wiped from that particular geography. And so in the episode, Nolan and I would discuss how exactly he arrived at the Eureka moment for Rydro farming, why specialty crops are so much more challenging to grow than typical leafy greens, how tomatoes have become his flagship product, the opportunity to provide specialty crops like heirloom tomatoes, 365 days a year to restaurants and consumers inside of cities, directly inside of cities, and lastly, the moonshot opportunity for a company like Rydro Farming. So without further ado, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Nolan Ryan, founder and CEO of Rydro Farming. Nolan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Peter. This is great. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate it. Nolan, let's start with the basics. What is Rydro Farming? Yeah, so
1: Rydro Farming is an indoor hydroponic farm that specializes in heirloom vine crops and specialty produce. And, and we grow those in converted commercial real estate assets. So that's the, I guess, the general synopsis of what the
0: company is and what we do. Nice. When I first learned about what you're working on, from a mutual friend of ours, he started giving me just a little bit of background around how Rhydro Farming differs from some of the other vertical farming startups in the world. And we've had several on the show today that focus on a specific set of crops. And from what I understand, Rhydro Farming differs in a few ways. If, if, if you can, let's start macro around the state of vertical farming and then how hydro farming fits into that picture?
1: Yeah, so I guess I just a broad general macro level. An indoor hydroponic farm differs from traditional farming and and even greenhouse farming in a lot of different ways, mostly with the equipment and the technology that we use in controlling the growth processes in the variables in the environment to get the highest production out of the plants. There's a, it's it's interesting, the, the industry is scattered all over the place as far as the, what level of technology you use and, and try to incorporate into your production. And hydro farming being completely indoors, we would probably be on the very high side of uh, the level of tech that, that we would look to incorporate. We differentiate ourselves in, in in a couple of different ways. One is definitely the product that we grow. A lot of these indoor hydroponic farms tend to stick to the leafy greens. And if they do venture into the vine crops, it's mostly in the commodity side of things. And that tends to be in greenhouse production not completely indoors, and I can get into the differentiating factors between those and why one person would choose to grow in one environment as opposed to the other. But on okay. a broad macro level, we, we use a lot higher level of technology to control the variables such as lighting, humidity, uh, temperature, dissolved oxygen, VPD levels, CO2 as well. So there is a- all sorts of different variables that we're able to control that other farms necessarily wouldn't be able to. And then we also try to distinguish ourselves from the type of produce that we grow as well. We're not targeting the commodity, low price crops. We, we wanna focus in the specialized kind of, and really what it is, the highly perishable crops that don't transport very well and that need to be produced locally for either a specific region or town or uh, community to be able to consume.
0: Okay, so this piece is really interesting to me because, to your point, we've had quite a few companies on the show that have focused on the leafy greens. And the spectrum of leafy gr- greens that they grow is quite far ranging, but they don't do the specialty crops. And so I want to double click into that point specifically. If you could, Just demystify why some of these companies tend to default to leafy greens, the products that hydro farming is growing and why why specialty crops of this nature benefit from growing inside of these indoor farms versus traditional farms on the outskirts or many miles away from the destination.
1: Yeah, so not being involved in the other organizations that do grow leafy greens, I obviously wasn't part of the decision making process. But what I can tell you is that it is easier to grow the leafy greens. And as far as products being adopted by consumers, if you're growing lettuce, everybody's familiar with lettuce. So if you can provide a superior product, that is uh, something that a consumer is already comfortable with, then that typically tends to be one of the decision-making factors as to why you grow leafy grains. The other thing also has to do with the technology that is currently available and just, you know, the level of automation that is in place because a lot of those automated factors that and advantages you get from bringing your product indoors, it's much easier to do that for leafy greens than it is vine crops. Not to say that in the vine crops in the, the facilities that I'm looking to build and design would not have areas of automation. They definitely do. But I was even just right before we, we, were, we jumped on this podcast, I was watching a video of this company, Green Automation, where they literally can take the, the entire process of growing a product and getting it to a customer and automate the entire thing to the point where the client or the person who ends up eating the product in the, the lettuce, in this case it was, is the first person to touch it. So there's a little bit more automation that's built into that side of the industry for those specific products.
0: Got it. And just to build on that, can you just speak a little bit about exactly what types of products you're focused at, focused on harvesting and why you're really excited about those particular crops and how rhido farming and the technology you use enables you to harvest those things unlike previous generations where it's been exceptionally hard to do so amidst all the other variables that traditional farming has to contest with. Yeah,
1: so the product that we specialize in right now is heirloom tomatoes. And that is because the company is located in Worcester, Massachusetts. So we have our beta greenhouse there. And it's more just about what makes sense. We want to be able to grow any heirloom vine crop, right? Squash, cucumbers, peppers, the whole gamut. But what makes sense in this geographical area for this consumer base is tomatoes. People have a very hard time finding good tomatoes as is right now. And part of the reasons why we chose to specialize in these heirloom varieties is that they offer superior quality taste presentation, but it's very hard to grow them profitably in outdoor environments with, without a really good control of the, the conditions that surround the crops. They're extra susceptible to humidity and diseases, and they need very specific macro and micro nutri- nutritional content within the soil. And so all of these factors make it really hard to grow it in a hoop house or even a greenhouse structure, let alone in the soil on a field. And so by bringing these products completely indoors, we are making the the plant itself more productive, but then we also out of the crops that are actually grown and develop on the plant, a higher number of them end up being able to be marketable and consumed by people because we don't have some of the deficiencies and toxicities that can affect the, I guess what's called the marketable rate of the produce that you're growing. I've done studies and I've read publications about heirloom tomatoes that were grown in soil in New Hampshire and Connecticut. And what the conclusion was is that a lot of these crops, even though they can be productive, they're not – they're just not very marketable because they, they crack, they they split, and they just don't present very well. you right. They don't have good – the uniform shape, color – things of that nature. And so when you take a crop that has the potential of an heirloom vine crop, right, in, in heirloom tomatoes, so you can specialize in specific nutrient compositions, right? Some of them have like really high quality quantities of either you know, vitamin C or B12 or something along those lines, and you bring that indoors so that you basically, it's another resiliency factor around can you get the level of productivity that you want out of these crops? That's what really we, we really want to do. And that's why we chose to specialize in these crops is because what, what those publications actually said was that it's not necessarily that the plant itself can't yield as much as some of the commodity crops that look and taste and appear to be the same. It's just that the factors when they're grown outdoors or in greenhouses, and you're not able to control some of those variables end up having a much less productive crop just due, due to what happens in the growth process. Got so that's it. why we we ended up trying to specialize in those products.
0: Got it, got it. First of all, Worcester represent. Let's go. <laughs> um, Absolutely, the, the woo. Yep, yeah. For the listeners, Worcester is actually my hometown. Nolan, great to meet another local. So I'm quite familiar with what the local customer base looks like in Worcester. There's a massive variety of restaurants and. It makes a lot of sense to locate opportunity of this nature close to that source. There's just a really large and sufficient set of original customers to de-risk the opportunity out of the gate. What I'd be curious to hear is, what is the status quo today? Where are these restaurants and these grocers getting most of their heirloom tomatoes And I think what will be helpful as customers hear this is – I mean as listeners hear this is it really just paints a picture of, A, how hydro farming is going to start coexisting in the world of food. But also really how large of a step function improvement it is over potentially driving, transporting tomatoes however many miles, probably having to put some type of – pesticide or something of that nature on top of it so that it can maintain some of the characteristics you were discussing. But paint a picture of the comp between what the status quo is today and how hydro farming competes versus what the default is.
1: Yeah. So as of right now, the if you want heirloom tomatoes in Massachusetts, you really only have about two months to be able to get them. It's really July and August. And that's just because, going back to the point that I made earlier, these crops don't transport, right? Their their skin is thin and they they can't travel the distances that farms that could produce them in either hoop houses or outdoors or greenhouses would need them to travel to make them available on the market on a year-round basis. So right now, if you want these products, you're basically locked into a two-month kind of window of time and on top of that you have to you don't know how what the practices are about the farms and it it comes from a hodgepodge of kind of local soil farms those are really the only farms right now that that grow these crops consistently or at least when I say consistently what I mean is every year during those two period two months they'll offer those crops. We are actually able to offer this product on a year-round basis which I think is a really important distinguishing factor for us because what that enables us to do is not only are we able to grow steady and consistent demand for our product but it gives us the the ability to have consistent pricing as well, which I think is really important too, because you see these huge swings in the, the price of produce depending on the month. And it's because they're not available during other times of the year. And obviously the demand goes up for them when they are available. And people recognize that they can only get good quality heirloom tomatoes during that July and August month. So they're willing to pay, honestly, quite a lot for these crops. And what we want to do is just make it more accessible on a year-round basis and also shed, I guess, some light into the fact that there are other crops out there, right? I think when everybody thinks of a tomato, they think of just uh, the standard red round tomato. And so there's really, honestly, a lot of different varieties that you can choose from and and choose to incorporate into your food. It's just most people aren't willing to to try it during that the, the either the two months or they're just not very familiar with it because it's only there for a, a really short period of time so that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to to be able to provide people access to these crops grown, again, to your point, in a healthier format too, right? We're bringing this completely indoors, so we don't need any pesticides or insecticides. We we won't do any spraying or anything like that. It's a very holistic process to grow these crops and then provide them on a consistent basis year round so that people can have access to better quality and better tasting food.
0: Wow. And for the remaining 10 months, are restaurants just removing? any item or just removing tomatoes from the list of entrees that they make available or are they sourcing these from other parts of the country in order to make sure they can continue to deliver on those specific items
1: most of them just remove them because it it depends on the dish right if the a good example is a caprese salad right a lot of the flavor and, and the why somebody would order a caprese salad usually is for the tomatoes that can you know, add a significant amount of flavor and nutrients to that dish when you don't have what's called a vine ripened crop, which is a crop that's able to mature while it's on the vine. When you look at the sociology and development of these products or the these crops, tomatoes specifically, ninety percent of the flavor on the nutrients comes within the last ten days of that crop being on the vine. So if you pick it before that period of time, you're really missing out on a substantial amount a substantial amount of I guess two of what I would say the biggest marketable features of the produce is how it tastes and what are the health benefits from it. So a lot of these restaurants and and companies, they they scrap those dishes because they don't feel confident enough in being able to put their name next to a dish that has, honestly, a, a greenhouse gas tomato, which if you look at the supply chain of how some of these tomatoes is, they're picked and they're shipped, and then they're actually put into chambers filled with ethanol gas that changes the pigmentation of them so that they appear red. It's an artificial ripening process, and then they're sent to the supermarkets. They're picked green, they're shipped, and then they're artificially ripened, and then they're put out for display. So if you're a chef and you take a lot of pride in the, your creations and your dishes, you don't want those products to represent your work. You want something that fully represents the flavor and the nutrients and I guess the experience of the dish that you're trying to, to give to your clients. So I guess uh, short answer is that, yeah, most of them do just scrap these products and scrap the dishes that they they offer because they, they just don't have enough trust and faith in the quality of these products. And again, it's you can't do that supply chain process with these highly perishable tomatoes. They just don't, they don't transport, well, crack, but the spoilage rates are too high these heirloom tomatoes are not grown on a year-round basis.
0: Wow. Yeah, I remember when when we had Tobias on from Square Roots, he was telling us a bit about how they think about what types of leafy greens to support, the different inputs they use to program and prime the climates to make sure that The greens can grow to their purest, kind of fullest potential. But then to your point, like when it comes to this flavor profile, he was telling me that – I think it was – the broccoli was the example he used. Every additional day that a broccoli is either transported from the source to their selling destination or the household and it isn't consumed – it loses virtually all of its flavor profile. So the value proposition for growing close to the the source of consumption is just a factor more compelling than what the status quo is today. But what I glossed over, and now you got my wheels turning, Nolan. How does one get obsessed? about this category of work? Like one day, were you reading someone something and you said, you know what? I I think tomatoes are an interesting uh, place that's worth exploring more. And then you had this set of eureka moments. I mean, talk me through how you arrived at the Rydro farming eureka moment. Yes. So that that's it's funny you ask. It's definitely
1: a long process and it didn't happen overnight. And there was a bunch of iterations of the business plan and where I wanted to take this. But it originally actually all started from a school project that I had my freshman year of college which was, I think a lot of universities do this. They tell their, their students to come up with a business plan that helps the local community and can create jobs and has a positive externality on, I, I, I guess, the economy and, and the people that would either consume their products or live in the area. And so my group settled on hydroponic farming, and not for specialty produce, but I was just really fascinated with that idea. And I had never heard of it, so I began to do a bunch of research into it after the project was done. I said, this is a really unique kind of neat idea, and I, I don't see any of these where I'm living. I, I haven't heard of them. I, I don't think I buy any produce or anything like that from one of them. So it was really just the, the initially just curiosity, right? Like I just wanted to know more about the industry. And through that process, I was like maybe I could try to see what I could do on my own if I'm able to grow this. So I started looking into equipment and what it would take to do that. And I ended up making a meeting with the Chamber of Commerce in Worcester, and they directed me to the Worcester Food Hub at the time. And so I had a meeting with them, and they just offered me, before I like, really knew what I was getting into, because, we can't find anybody that can grow tomatoes for our mobile market in the winter. If you can do that, we will buy up to 300 pounds per week from you for this market. And so I'm sitting there. I'm about, I think I was you know, 20 at the time. And the only thing that went through my head was somebody just offered me a contract. I, Maybe I should jump at this and just worst case scenario, f- figure it out. And so in that meeting, I just said, uh, yeah, you know what? Let me, let me see what I can do with my facility and I, I can tweak some things around, but I, I think I can do that. And at the time, I, I didn't even really have a facility, but I went home and I actually convinced my parents that if I graduated college early, I could take the money that I would have spent on tuition and that I could use it to purchase some of this equipment to, to, to basically build my own indoor farm. What I ended up doing is I've converted a barn into kind of a, or a portion of a barn into kind of a beta indoor farm. So I built the farm from the ground up. I put all the walls, the, the ceiling, every, pretty much everything that goes into the farm. I built it pretty much on my own uh, with the help of my girlfriend, who is fantastic as well. But, and then I just started growing. And at first, I hedged my bets. I I wasn't sure. I I spoke to somebody actually from Am Hydra Company, and they were like, if you're growing tomatoes indoors, you got to really make sure you know what you're doing. So I grew basil, cilantro, and tomatoes. And as soon as the tomatoes came in and I knew that I could successfully get that crop to uh, produce fruit, I scrapped all the basil and cilantro and just went full blown into the tomatoes. And so I ended up growing beefsteak tomatoes for 14 months straight. And that was my introduction into how do you grow hydroponically? I knew internally that I would probably have to raise money for this idea and that it's a very capitally intensive business. And I knew that there was just no shot that I would be able to convince someone to give me the amount of money that I probably would need to go out and build a commercial-grade facility if I didn't grow products myself and understand that process. And so what I really used is that the, this beta farm as a self-taught experience of what is what does a toxicity look like, what does a deficiency look like? How do you measure pH, EC? I played around with enhancing carbon dioxide, things of that nature, adding nitrogen during the earlier portion of the plant life and you know, potassium towards the end to help the fruiting development. I guess it, it was in, in some ways, just a hobby gone incredibly wild. And at the other time, I found it incredibly therapeutic to be able to grow these plants and to take them from the tiniest speck that was a seed and, and to grow them to 10, 15 feet long or tall. The ceiling height kind of my facilities aren't ideal for this, but I, I make do with what I have. And so, yeah, so I guess that that's the, the iteration, the slow obsession of how do I, I first it was an idea and then I kind of got an opportunity and I just said, you know what, I really think that I'm going to try to run with this and see what I can make out of this. And so that's where I'm at now. The feedback that I got from all the restaurants and the people that I sold my products to is that they love the beefsteak tomatoes, but I consistently was asked if you can grow any of those specialty crops, the, the heirloom varieties, we'd be really interested in those. And so after the 14 months of growing the beefsteaks, I took probably about a year and I, and I stepped back and I just really figured out, okay, like now I know how to grow. Now I know all of, the, all of that side of this business. How do I take this idea and a product that people want and commercialize it? And so that's what I've been doing for a year now. And I've actually planted, I have plants growing now that are the heirloom varieties. I guess that's the slow evolution and process of ride Your farming where it's been and just how I really got into all of this. Uh, it was a lot of self-education.
0: What an amazing story. I mean, really, you're tinkering on this idea, and this organization just hands you a contract. I mean, there's no better way to de risk the leap into a venture of this nature than saying, hey, here's a customer out of the gate. Can you, can you fulfill the demand for us? Something that you said at the very top of the conversation around distressed assets. Is interesting to me. So in this scenario, you said that you retrofit a barn to grow the beef, steak, tomatoes. And longer term, my hunch is that's actually a core part of your strategy is looking at these distressed assets inside of cities and repurposing them into indoor hydroponic farms. Talk to me about how you think about locating farms and the criteria for a distressed asset that you think could be a potential good fit for one of these farms?
1: Yeah. So this is actually interesting for me because when I came out of college, obviously the farm was not making enough money for me to live on. So what I ended up doing is I paired a lot of my interests and I took a job as an industrial real estate specialist in the Worcester County area with a real estate firm called NAI Glickman, Cavago, and Jacobs. So essentially what I've been doing for the past almost two years now is helping people buy and purchase industrial real estate assets. And always in the back of my mind, whenever I walk into a building is how would I convert this building into an indoor farm? And my, my thesis is that especially in some of these cities that had a lot of manufacturing areas and buildings and, and companies is that as there's a turnover in in those companies that there's going to be commercial real estate assets, specifically industrial. And I also think now big box retail has an opportunity as well to play a role in this to be converted into indoor farms. I guess the thing that you look for in those is one for at least vine crops is you want really great ceiling height, right? Some of these crops can last I've heard for indoor farms that they can last up to 24 months where you plant it and you grow and you continually harvest over a 24 month period of time. Typically in in greenhouses, it's usually on a 12 month basis, but you need really good ceiling height because that crop just continues to stretch, stretch. So that's really an important factor as well. You obviously need good highway access to be able to ship your products. And then as well, I think for an important thing for hydro farming is visibility. And that's what actually appeals to me a lot about the big box retail is that the way I envision this is somebody's driving down a highway and, or, or driving down a main road. And, and the, the example that I use, and you'll probably be familiar with this because you're from the area, is the Auburn Mall. If you could take somewhere in that and put a farm in, people are going to be driving by that every single day. And if you see hydro farming on... In the front of what used to be a Sears or something like that, you're going to be curious as to what rider farming is, and so I think that being able to convert buildings with high visibility and that aren't currently being used for either manufacturing or distribution is a significant advantage, both as far as a competitive advantage, right, because we're so close to our clientele that where the transportation times are minimal, but also the visibility aspect of it so that people can drive by every single day and say, hey, that's where I either buy my tomatoes or hey, hopefully in the future is that's where I buy my squash, my peppers. So because I think that there has been a disconnect in our society around you just go to the grocery store and you pick up food and you never see the farm and you never really even think about it. I'm sure some people don't even look at the label to see where it comes from or who grew it. And so I think that being able to get on people's radar and converting some of these assets and, and having that visibility aspect to it is a great uh, marketing advantage that we would have because people are going to be driving by our farms all the time. And that kind of poses a question and that raises the awareness of the business as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, you definitely brought up a good point about connection to food. People go through the motions, they purchase the product and really there's no consideration as to where the food originally came from. When I interviewed Tobias on the show, one of the stats that alarmed me most was the average distance lettuce travels to get to New York City where I live now or Massachusetts. The vast majority of lettuce grown in the United States comes from one or two states in the southwest. So that's many miles that these products have to travel from point A to point B to get to the end customer. Which brings me to my next question. And it's the moonshot for a company like Rydro Farming. When you look at the next few years for – a kind of the broader opportunity in localized hydroponic farming, and how RYDRO can be a major player in that opportunity. What is the takeover mode moonshot opportunity for a company like RYDRO?
1: Yeah, so I I, I think long term th- there's there's a short term goal for RYDRO and then there's a long term goal. The, in the short term. We want to be able to build out, design, and grow our own produce and source it to our own clients and manage that internally. And then long-term, I'd say the moonshot kind of vision is to get good enough at designing and building these indoor farms and to build out the unit economics of that. So that we can approach brands in independent operations, other growers, people interested in, in growing food, and be able to give them kind of a playbook as to how they can internalize that operation. The way that I look at it is, if instead of Whole Foods or Big Y or or, or someone of that nature saying, hey, we buy from a local farm, it's now, hey, we grow in a local farm. And farming would provide the infrastructure of how to do that. Because there's two kind of parts to this is, growing hydroponically is very different than traditional growing, right? So the education around how you actually grow is very different and there's a learning curve with that. But then maintaining the actual grow environment and the equipment and what goes into that, the lights, the carbon dioxide, all of those factors that I mentioned, every one of those is a piece of equipment that you need to know how to operate into maintenance. And so I think if you can provide brands a, a, a sense of security and, and confidence that if they lease out basically a turnkey operation from you, that it's all prefabbed, ready to go to grow. Right now we're growing tomatoes, but you can repurpose these assets to grow peppers, cucumbers, again, whatever product that they feel like they can sell the best or they want to start with, we can provide that infrastructure for them and we can de-risk the investment for them so that they can vertically integrate their own supply chain as well. Because it's one thing to say, hey, we want to internalize our growth and the products that we grow. It's another thing to say, hey, we need to figure out how to build a 50,000 square foot indoor tomato facility. And that may take years to figure out how to develop. But with us, we take that risk on for you. And we would just provide the infrastructure and maintain that infrastructure. And you could staff it or, or whatever. And then we could even help with training and you know consulting and, and things of that nature too. So that's that really is the long shot, moonshot image for Rydro is that we get really good at growing our own produce and selling our own produce. And we have connections and then we can build out the unit economics for other brands And almost become essentially a marketplace, right, where we can place people who are looking for crops with growers and provide the infrastructure for growers and and honestly enable people to get into the farming industry, again, at a de-risked investment level. Because the major – in my opinion, one of the major reasons why people haven't gone into this and gravitated into this more is because a lot of these people who are really interested and may want to be growers – they they're, that's what they are right they're growers but you need to have the business side of things to make sure that you can build the actual farms too and 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 I think that poses a huge problem for some of these current existing farms of transitioning their production from either field or hoop house into indoors they, they don't know how to navigate that jump and so we would be able to provide help and assistance with them and and give security in that area so that they, they could feel comfortable going from, Producing crops either in soil or greenhouses or whatever it may be into the completely indoor realm. Wow.
0: Nolan, I just want to tip my hat to you. Your energy, charisma, and depth of understanding in this field is one, um, infectious, and two, super impressive. When I heard a bit about what you were doing from a mutual friend, I said, Oh, this is. I got to talk to the guy and I'm just blown away by how much you've been able to accomplish in such a short period of time, how you've been thinking about de-risking the opportunity in the short term and what Rydro can look like over the next few years. The, The last question I ask in every interview is off topic, but I want to give you the opportunity to participate in what I've called the idea graveyard. It's this notion around inventors, founders having this laundry list of ideas in their notes that at some point maybe they thought was interesting and maybe they chucked off as terrible in hindsight or are actually legitimate and high potential, but you just don't have the time to work on them. And so my question for you is, what are one of these ideas that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for the time being is just rotting away in your idea graveyard?
1: Yeah, so I've actually – I've given a good amount of thought to this because I've listened to a bunch of the the other podcasts that you, you've done. So I'd say my father is a professor at Becker College, and he constantly talks about the e-sports gaming type arena that they have there. And so one of my ideas that I've had is converting theaters into streaming parties and events, whereas if you look at the infrastructure of a theater, it's going to be really hard to repurpose that into anything right? or, or – Basically anything other than a live event involving media. And so one of my ideas is to convert current movie theaters into kind of a venue place for either Twitch streamers or things like that where people can watch events or gaming experiences or things like that. And Another Ooh. thing that I briefly, very briefly explored this idea with an engineer in the really early days of Rydro was making a robotic bird that can do data collection and pollination within a greenhouse so along the lines of the controlled environmental ag. But I, I met a really fascinating engineer that was telling me about a, a drone bird concept that he was creating and he didn't really know how to commercialize it and so for a little while we threw the idea uh, around about trying to commercialize it for greenhouses to to be able to pollinate and then to be able to connect like collect visual data take pictures and scan and have like a probe for temperature humidity so you could get as this kind of drone bird would move around in a greenhouse that you'd be able to get live updates and then it could identify toxicities and deficiencies. So that, that was probably the other one. And then probably one of the, I guess, wackier ideas that, that I might've had. And uh, I'm not sure it'll be interesting to hear your take on this, but I've always thought about potentially approaching Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports and trying to convince him to create a pizza sauce with the heirloom tomatoes, and I would call it Portnoy's Pizza Sauce because he's this big pizza guy. He goes over, he reviews all these pizza pizza shops, and he and I think it would be very interesting uh, to hear his thoughts on whether or not he think that he could make a product like an actual pizza sauce because he has the perfect platform to launch that off of, uh, and he has a great following. Like We could make like mm-hmm. wacky purple tomato sauces and green tomato sauces and things like that. So I guess those are uh, some of the, the things sitting in my idea graveyard.
0: Nolan, bring in the heat. I'm going to work backwards first. I think Portnoy's tomato sauce or pizza sauce is super interesting. Obviously, a clear fit to fit right into what he does. It's actually super interesting because there's a lot of activity in the hot sauce category right now. Obviously, you have Hot Ones and First We Feast. There's another direct-to-consumer startup that just launched – that's doing specialized, you know, direct-to-consumer hot sauces. I've seen probably, if anything, nothing in the pizza sauce, tomato sauce category, and creating this defining Portnoy pizza sauce is super compelling. And I think you have a lot of value to bring to the table, like being able to actually harvest and produce a reliable stream of heirloom tomatoes year-round would make for a really equitable partnership. So I'm going to go thumbs up on that one. (laughs) Sounds good. Um, I'm glad you like it. And the other two are also super interesting. I think that ag tech broadly is one of the most opportune categories across the climate solution set. For example, one one other re- tangentially related opportunity is this physicist working on mechanical trees. And his thinking was trees are sequester carbon a certain way. When breeze flows through the leaves, I don't want to get into the details. But it's essentially, let's say that trees have this baseline capability of carbon sequestration. And his question is, could you create a mechanical tree that has roughly the same properties of a natural tree, but is just much better and more effective at at capturing carbon from the air and then repurposing it. And it would go through a chamber, and the byproduct can then be used for biofuels, livestock feed, a bunch of other applications. So uh, the broader opportunity around mechanizing products. That were historically natural, or to your point around the bird or drone, like using these new technologies to closely monitor environments so that people have real time data to work off of is an absolute thumbs up. Tons of opportunity there. What was the first idea? It was the, uh, the theater for the streaming oh, yes. and, and things like that, yeah. And dude, yeah, you look at you look, you look at that. So Regal Cinemas, right? I think they, if they're not going bankrupt, they're shutting down hundreds of, of theaters across the country. You're, how are those going to be repurposed? You can knock them down and turn them into something else or you can repurpose them. And a theater is a great starting point to kick off these either streaming contests, competitions. The big thing I'm wondering there, obviously, let's assume that COVID gets solved and we can return to some semblance of normalcy. The big question is to what extent people will seek out that type of experience versus watching from the comfort of their homes. You could probably say, hey, you could say the same about movies. People go to movies. So I am also bullish on that concept. Nolan, uh, whatever ends up happening with Rydro or all the above, count me in, man. <laughs> I would gladly <laughs> support you with all the above. Yeah, no, that's great. I know. So uh, Nolan, there's nothing left to do but roll the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. Yeah, I guess that
1: I would say I'm currently in the process of opening kind of the the seed round for my farm. And I I feel like I've got a really great distribution strategy. I've got two kind of local wholesalers that uh, I'm working with and potentially a national company. And so really right now, anybody who's interested in being an early stage investor And really just investors in general and people who are intrinsically uh, motivated to help businesses of this type, right, and to promote local food, local economy, resiliency and and diversity in the types of food that we eat. I would love to be able to connect with you and and share either my slide deck or a little bit more about the business plan that I have in place for Rydro. Because I think this is—I think this is a concept that can make the world a better place and can make good, healthy, nutritional food more accessible to everybody. And I'd love to be able to share that with people. And uh, I'm going to need help doing that. So anybody who is interested in helping me with that, uh, I would love to have a conversation with you. My, my website is www.ridrofarming.com. I'm on Instagram at underscore farming and then my Email is riderfarming at gmail.com. I'm an easygoing guy, really easy to talk to. So I would just encourage anybody who's interested to reach out.
0: Nolan, congrats again on your early success. I wish you nothing but the best and immense amount of success. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure here. I appreciate it. Hey there. You made it to the outro you so much for listening to today's episode if you're new here welcome if you're a long-time listener thank you so much we're actively casting for new guests on our show so if you have a rock founder or company in mind that's working on something cool message me on instagram at peter 11 or email us hello at ingodhands.us. thank you so much again and look forward to bring you another new episode next tuesday